Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. It's so good to be back. Welcome. Happy penultimate day of February to all y'all. We are coming to you live from New York City, live from Manhattan and Brooklyn, and live, of course, from South Carolina. Uh, we are a y'all use kind of show tonight. Chris Houselt, our executive producer, running the boards in South Carolina, the iconic Thea Harper running this whole thing in Brooklyn. And I'm so pleased to be with you. And I'm so grateful to Joe Sudbay for filling in a couple of days last week. We had a crazy week and I wasn't planning on being gone that much. I, I got your angry tweets uh, and I hello to everyone listening live, our evil army of the night. We love to hear from you guys. We have a lot of ground to cover. So for the next couple of hours, please, please join the conversation and rant and rave or tell your jokes or make your threats. Maybe you're not listening live. Perhaps you're part of our evil army of the night, listening on SiriusXM On Demand or on the SiriusXM app or on the John Fugelsang podcast. Well, we like you guys even more. You're always welcome to call if you're bored, you know, in the evening time. Otherwise, you write to us with your complaints and your comments and your bad jokes and your threats anytime on our show's Facebook page or at JohnFugelsang.com. We'd love to hear from you. We have a really, we got a great show tonight. The iconic Rhonda Handsome will be with us. Also, author Naomi Oreskes, who's co-author of the book The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. If you want to know when Reaganomics and all of the propaganda and brainwashing that went with it really began, uh, it began when Ronald Reagan was a very small boy. And it's still carrying on to this day. At a time when Americans are looking at what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, and they're more angry at the government than the train companies. They're more angry at the government than the lobbyists who paid money to roll back safety regulations. It's a system. It's a racket. It thrives here. It works. We're going to talk all about it. I want to begin by... Thanking you all for your nice cards. I wasn't sick. I wasn't really on vacation either. I was going away, and we already had a system where we weren't going to be doing live shows on Monday and Friday, so I was all set to be away and do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I had to travel for some family reasons. More or less, folks, I just had the stupidest trip I've ever had. In nine days, I was on seven airplanes, and uh, in the last six days, I've had four different rental cars in three different states. We flew out to L.A. for like a couple days. The child had the week off from school, so we went out and, and uh, you know, go and, and see some friends and take it easy and be in warm weather for a couple days. But then we had to go see my wife's uncle in Tucson, who's a lovely gentleman. He's turning 80, and he's 
very dear to me, and we haven't seen him since before the pandemic. Are you having this? Are you having this period where like, oh, God, the pandemic? Yeah, that that seems like it's mostly done. It's time to go visit all the elderly loved ones I, I promised I'd go visit two years ago, three years ago. So we're in Tucson for a couple of days. Wow, the weather. I mean, God bless everyone who's been through this horrible weather and that insane winter storm last week when it was 80 degrees in D.C., and it was freezing rain in the desert where I was. So we're, we're, we're out there. And I did the show from my hotel room last Wednesday. Flew back to L.A. And then we, we had some very sad news on our trip. A good friend of mine, uh, my friend Mike Danger, who is um, also known as Mike Schrader. You might have heard me mention him before. Um, he passed away. He is a, a young guy. His older sister is one of my closest friends. And Mike was diagnosed with cancer right before the COVID lockdown began. He began the chemo and then the lockdown happened. Imagine trying to go through chemotherapy anytime, but imagine it happening right when the entire world shuts down. His family's amazing, his girlfriend's amazing, and he's amazing, and he battled it bravely and beautifully for years. This guy was my friend's kid brother, and he came to New York City one time when my dad was dying, and he watched my, my cats for me when I had to go down to Florida and always endeared himself to me for that. And then later he was coming to New York and I was like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to Broadway shows or sports events? And this is back about 10 years ago. He wanted to go to Occupy Wall Street, which made me love him even more. He was a uh, psychology student who was also a bartender. So he did a lot of therapy work from behind the bar. And here's why I tell you all this. My so my friend calls me up and, and, and says, hey, listen, we have a weird request for you. I said, okay. And she says, yeah, listen, my, my brother, he, he had, a, he had w one request for his funeral, and he's had this since he was a kid. Um, he loved the Muppets. And his favorite Muppet was Rizzo, the rat, who I think, you know, is a great character and, and really peaked in uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. He's wonderful. And she said, uh, my friend Kate said to me, um, would you consider reading his eulogy as Rizzo? I thought, yeah, geez, I, I do a lot of impressions, but I, I, I never tried Rizzo. I, I, and I, I worked at it for like a day, and I, I didn't think I could nail it. I was like, I'm going to need more time. I, I thought it was charming that her brother wanted Rizzo the Rat to read his eulogy, but I, I, I couldn't do it. And I thought, oh, no, it's his last request. He wanted, he wanted a Muppet rodent to read his eulogy. And my, my friend and her brother wrote a great eulogy and another friend of ours who's Spike Lee's editor punched it up and had some great jokes. And so I thought, I've got to, I've got to try to get a ringer. And, uh, and I just said, let me think about the best voiceover actors I know. And I went to someone who's a good friend of this show, someone who I've toured with on the Sexy Liberal show, and someone who's just had an incredible career uh, as a voice actor in animation. And that's the great Carlos Alizraki, who's most famous, I guess, for doing Rocco's Modern Life which came out before I had a kid, so um, I never got to see his most famous work. But I called him, and I just tell you this story to give a salute to a great artist. Um, and, and he said, well, I, I've never done a character before. And I said, I, I understand that. Uh, do you think you can learn it? He goes, well, when do you need it by? I'm like, like right now. Like, they're going to send me the text today sometime. And he goes, I'll, I'll try. And he was at Comic-Con. So Saturday comes, and my wife flew directly from L.A. to Boulder. And I flew the kid back to New York because the kid had to go to school. So flew the kid back all day on the plane Saturday. We got home at like 1130 at night and I'm on the plane and my friend sent me the, the eulogy and I'm like, oh God, it's so late. The funeral's tomorrow afternoon. And I shift off to Carlos Ellis Rocky, who's done this show many times. And uh, he, again, in some state doing some Comic-Con 
And I just said, Carlos, my plane's taking off, but they, they just sent me this here. If you can do anything with it, if it's too long, I apologize. When I landed and got home at 1130 at night, Carlos had recorded the entire thing. It was like 10 minutes long. He did it in one take and he nailed it. All the humor, all the vulgarity. It was an Irish wake of a funeral. All the pathos. It was heartbreaking. And um, I, I slept for four hours, got up, flew back. <laughs> So I flew from Tucson to L.A., L.A. to New York, and then I had five hours and then flew New York to Boulder, had the funeral yesterday, and it worked beautifully. I'm just here to praise a great artist. I The weirdest request I've ever had was to ask someone, can you please record a eulogy for a young guy who died way too soon from cancer? And I want you to do it in the voice of a Muppet rodent. Thank you, Carlos Elizraki for giving me faith. And thank all of you for listening to that story. We're at 866-997-4748. And I want to talk about the pledge. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, who really shouldn't have wanted that job as badly as she did. She was reelected to her, her position after the right and my pillow guy challenged her. I don't know if you happened to see her yesterday on CNN State of the Union, but she announced that all Republicans seeking the party's nomination for president would be required to sign a pledge that they would agree to support whoever ultimately becomes the party nominee. And that pledge is the precondition to be allowed to participate in Republican presidential primary debates. Now, you know she's writing this because of one difficult man-child. And it's not Ron DeSantis. He's a different difficult man-child. Donald Trump doesn't pay attention to legally binding contracts. And I think it's really cute that Ronna McDaniel thinks that she can get him to agree to something and that he will honor it. You know, like one of his contractors or uh, one of his wives. Don't negotiate with Donald Trump because he doesn't care what he promises you. You know this, Rana, don't you? He promised to release his taxes for years. He promised he'd build the wall and get Mexico to pay for it. He kept promising infrastructure weeks coming. He lies. He lies. So we, we saw this a couple of years ago with Reince Priebus. Do you remember way back in, in time, Reince Priebus, who we should talk about because... Well, every man over 50 should check his Reince Priebus once a year. But um, back in 2015, Reince Priebus had this job, the RNC chair. And uh, he went to candidate Trump and had exactly the same document saying you sign this, saying you promise you will support whoever the nominee is and we'll let you debate. And Trump signed it. You know, they were terrified he would like run as an independent and wreck the Republican Party's chances against Hillary Clinton. He really thought, let me get Donald Trump to sign a loyalty pledge, you know, like, like a marriage vow. He'll take that seriously. And then they had the debate when they asked all the candidates on stage, will you all pledge to support the nominee, whoever it is? And Donald Trump was the only one to raise his hand saying he wouldn't do it. Like he'd literally signed the very document that Ronna McDaniels is trying to get him to sign right now. And he just didn't care. So here's yesterday on CNN State of the Union, RNC Chair Rana, don't say Romney, McDaniel, and they asked her about the candidate loyalty pledge for the party nominee. The first Republican debate will be in August in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Will candidates be required to sign a pledge saying that they will support whomever becomes the nominee in order to get on that debate stage? We haven't put the criteria out, but I expect a pledge will be part of it. It was part of 2016. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, right? If you're going to be on the Republican National Committee debate stage asking voters to support you, you should say, I'm going to support the voters and who they choose as the nominee. As RNC chair, if I said I wouldn't support the Republican nominee, I would be removed from office. I would. I'd be rightly removed. It'd be part of our bylaws, and I would be kicked out as RNC chair. Mm -hmm. Anybody getting on the Republican National Committee debate stage 
should be able to say, I will support the will of the voters and the eventual nominee of our party. I want you to listen to what former President Donald Trump said a couple of weeks ago in an interview with conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt on this very topic. If you're not the nominee, will you support whoever the GOP nominee is? It would depend. I would I would give you the same answer I gave in 2016 during the debate. Uh, it would have to depend on who the nominee was. So are you prepared to block the former president? Well, he, he signed it in 2016. I he know. did. Everybody signed it in 2016. But this is about the here and the now. Yeah, he didn't I, commit I to it. I think they're all going to sign it. I really do. I think the voters <laughs> are very intent on winning. And they do not want to see a debate stage of people saying, I'm not going to support this guy. I'm not going to support this guy. What they need so, to say is, I'm going to. So I got to stop her there. So, you know, he'll sign it. He'll sign it. He signed it last time. He put he raised his hand on the stage saying he wouldn't observe it. He signs a lot of things. He doesn't mean them, Rana. And Trump told Hugh Hewitt earlier this month that, you know, it would depend on who the nominee was. Trump's campaign responded to this interview yesterday on CNN by saying President Trump will support the Republican nominee because it will be him. Look, Rana, I'm here to help you. There's only one way. You can guarantee Donald Trump will support the GOP nominee if it's not him. And you know what that way is? If he's facing federal criminal charges or if he's been convicted by then. I don't think that'll happen, but he'll be looking for a pardon a year from now. And otherwise, you better pray, white girl, that Donald Trump gets indicted, because if he doesn't, there is no way he's going to sit there and let Ron DeSantis have his job. Meanwhile, are you following what's going on with Fox News? I mean, this is an organization that has in the past argued in court that they have a right to broadcast lies if they're newsworthy and the First Amendment protects that. They've, They've said this before. So when it comes to the former president's lies about voter fraud. Well, why shouldn't they cover that? Now, you already know about the Dominion text messages, and it's been amazing now that they've been released to see all these hosts and producers and executives privately express their appalling disgust about Donald Trump's lies that he had won. But what these texts have done is shown us that it's the Fox News executives and on cameras and producers who have pushed these lies and that unlike Donald Trump, we have physical evidence that they're not just stupid. They know they are lies. The conversations between Tucker Carlson and his producer, uh, Alex Pfeiffer, are crazy. November 7th, 2020, Carlson told Pfeiffer that the claims about the manipulated software were absurd. He says this software shit is absurd. And Pfeiffer writes back, I don't think there's evidence of voter fraud that swung the election. But two nights later, Tucky goes on TV and talks about how there's merit to claims about software manipulation. We have to find out, he said. Uh, right now, these messages have been released as part of this lawsuit from Dominion voting machines. Just wait for a jury to get a look at the messages that the Fox hosts and the guests and the executives were sending each other. And any jury can only conclude that people inside the network knew that they were pushing lies. And Dominion has sued them for over a billion dollars. The text messages are really worth reading. Tucker Carlson's criticizing Sidney Powell. I mean, you'd think he was working on progress. He called her claims shockingly reckless. Um, He called her a nut. Uh, Laura Ingram also just called her a complete liar. And it's amazing walking through all this. And then they'll go on the air. Laura Ingram said to Tucker Carlson, in a text, no serious lawyer could believe what they were saying. Tucker said, but they said nothing in public. Pretty disgusting. And then the next day, they went on the air 
and help push the lies more and said some of the criticisms about the voting machines had merit. So Smartmatic, which competes with Dominion, they sent a letter to Fox saying, we're going to sue. They put together a video package of an election expert pretty much debunking all of the lies and conspiracy theories that were pushed on Fox. And they aired this little video on Lou Dobbs' show, Maria Bartiromo's show, Janine Pirro's show. So on February 5th, one day after Smartmatic filed a defamation suit against Fox, Fox Business canceled Lou Dobbs tonight. Like, Fox has been prepping for this for over two years. They know it's coming. They know they screwed the pooch. They know they dropped the ball. Here's attorney Floyd Abrams on CNN telling them that Fox News is going to have a really hard time hiding behind the First Amendment, given all the evidence showing up that we know they knew they were pushing lies. And one of Fox's major problems here is that they had people on the air again and again and again who were saying that these voting machines were phony, that they were built for fraud, that they were purposely created for fraud. And at the same time, and right after those things are being said, more senior people at Fox are saying, the person that's saying that is a liar. I know she's a liar. She lied to me. And, and right. similar statements, uh, one statement by a very senior on-air person, uh, was was exactly the saying, but it was that that person's a complete nut, and right. that person is back again and again on the air, so it makes it very difficult, maybe not impossible, but really difficult for Fox to defend on the ground that well we're just journalists interviewing people. This is going to be such an amazing lawsuit because it's going to really decide what are the limits of the First Amendment for media companies. And I mean, if Fox can get away with it, if they can say they have enough wiggle room for all the lies they pushed, pretty much we're going to have a precedent that media organizations are allowed to lie and spread lies, not in the public interest, but they're protected by the First Amendment. And today it got more interesting because now Rupert Murdoch himself, chairman of News Corp, acknowledged in a deposition that several of the hosts for his networks, well, the New York Times called it, promoted the false narrative, I'll say, spread the fucking lie, that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, and that they could have stopped them, but they didn't. Murdoch said, under oath, they endorsed this idea. And he said it about Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs, and Maria Bartiromo. He said, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight, but he didn't. And you know why? Because remember back election night 2020, the first cable news channel to say that Donald Trump had lost was Fox. And MAGA hit the roof. And by the next day, CNN was beating Fox in the ratings. So Rupert got scared. And that's why they were ready to cut Trump loose. Fox wanted Trump gone. Fox was going to do a lot better as the hate Biden network than as the defend Trump network. But suddenly... The numbers were showing the viewers were abandoning them. So Rupert had them turn up the lie machine to 11. The people running our most popular news network knew that Trump's claims of voter fraud were lies, but they broadcast them anyway because they wanted the ratings. We found out today that Murdoch and Fox 
colluded with Jared Kushner and Trump and gave Kushner access to Fox confidential information about Biden's ads, along with the bait strategy. And they gave Kushner a preview of Biden's ads before they were public. That sounds a lot like campaign finance fraud to me. And again, Rupert just admitted under oath that Fox News hosts lied and endorsed a false notion of a stolen election. Our friend Congressman Ted Lieu said these actions by Murdoch seem illegal. At the very least, it would appear to be a campaign contribution of significant value well over federal campaign limits. So where's it going to go? This case is going to decide if the media can just lie and get away with it, or if they can't. I'll tell you, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, but you can yell rigged election in a crowded right-wing bubble. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. It's a pleasure to be back in New York. I am so excited for our next guest. As you guys know, it was in the early 20th century when business elites and their media allies set out to build a new American paradigm down with control by we the people and up with completely unfettered, unregulated markets. Big business attacked the guardrails that made the market safe and fair in the first place. They went after unions, they defended child labor, they persuaded millions of Americans that we should trust big business more than we the people. And by the 1970s, it had worked and it paved the way for Ronald Reagan. This free market ideology had defined almost a century across both Republican and Democratic administrations. And it's led to everything from incredible income inequality, a lack of action on climate change, the opioid scourge, and of course, a disgusting response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, Naomi Oreskes is professor of the history of science at Harvard University and author of nearly 200 scholarly papers. You may have seen her amazing TED Talk, Why We Should Trust Scientists. It was viewed more than a million times. She previously co-authored with Eric Conway, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Climate Change, which will change the way you look at how science news is reported in the media. Now, she and Mr. Conway have worked again on a new book that is one of the most important books of, of any election year, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. It's a history of big business buying media and politicians to make us think they've got our back when they don't. And it shines a piercing spotlight on this decades-long campaign to prevent the regulation of markets and to alienate the American people from uh, we the people, and instead call that big government. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Oreskes to SiriusXM. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. 
Thank you. And I'm sorry for such a long introduction, but I did want to set the stage uh, very well. We, we, we all know this is the history, and I'd say your, your work is chillingly prescient in light of the recent and preventable train derailment in, in Ohio. And yet every week there's more and more evidence that the American people have been sold a bill of goods by market fundamentalism. I, I'm curious, how did the idea behind the big myth first occur to you and your collaborator? Well, this book, The Big Myth, comes out of the work that I did with Eric Conway on our book, Merchants of Doubt. So in that book, we tracked climate change denial. We looked at its roots, its origins. Who were the people who were denying well-established science about climate change and why were they doing it? And what we found was that it wasn't what most people thought. It wasn't there weren't shills for the fossil fuel industry. It was actually ideologically driven. And it was driven by the ideology of market fundamentalism, their fear, their anxiety born out of Cold War anti-communism, that if the government became involved in economic affairs, if the government regulated the marketplace, this would put us on the slippery slope to socialism, a kind of backdoor to communism. And so when we finished that book, the obvious question was, well, why the heck did they believe that? Because the facts <laughs> of history don't support it. The facts of economics don't support it. And these men were all Cold War physicists. They weren't economists. They weren't historians. And many of the things they were saying were patently untrue. And I mean, Eric Conway and I are historians of science and technology, but we knew enough about American history to know that this idea wasn't right. And so we wanted to know where did the idea come from and why do so many people believe it? Well, I mean, we talk a lot on the show about religious fundamentalism and how religious fundamentalism is generally the enemy of faith. But you're exactly right. Free market fundamentalism to me is as cult-like as any spiritual mutation. How, just to get this obvious question out of the way, Professor, how do you define market fundamentalism? Well, we define market fundamentalism fundamentally as in the way Ronald Reagan described it, which is belief in the so-called magic of the marketplace. So right from the get-go, you know that this is a form of magical thinking. It's a kind of faith, which is why we think the term fundamentalism is fair and appropriate. And we see this having essentially three components. So the first part of the myth of market fundamentalism is the idea, the very notion of the free market. This is a ridiculous construct because, of course, there's no such thing as the free market. Markets are human institutions. They've been around since time immemorial, since ancient civilization. And there have always been rules and regulations about how markets operate from having fair weights and measures in medieval Europe to not being able to sell alcohol on Sunday in many American states. So the idea of the free market is itself a myth. The second part of the myth is the idea that this thing, the market, um, has kind of godlike qualities, that has wisdom, that it knows what's best, um, that we should have faith in the invisible hand. Uh, and that, <laughs> yeah, right. Think about it. Yes, the invisible hand. So, painful, that invisible? so true. I know, so much like faith. And um, that the government has to get out of the way and let the market do its magic. And then the third piece, which maybe is less familiar to your listeners, but that we document in the book, is the claim that market fundamentalists have been making really since the 1920s and 30s, that capitalism and freedom are two sides of the same coin. And so any compromise to the primacy of economic freedom, whether it's through government regulation of child labor or banning cigarette smoking in public places, that this will ultimately lead to the loss of political freedom and put us on the road to totalitarianism. Uh, I mean, and, and as you point out, the market 
has always been regulated to keep the spirituality theme going. I mean, even in the Bible, (laughs) the market is regulated. Exactly. So if you know your Old Testament, you know that there is a discussion in Leviticus about the rules and regulations for how markets should operate, uh, how you should pay laborers fairly, how you should uh, not uh, hold uh, laborers' wages overnight. Um, And even you could argue that the injunction not to glean the corners of your field in a way is a market regulation. (laughs) Completely, completely. I mean, it calls for a forgiveness of debts every seven years. Yes, right. Exactly. The jubilee, the the forgiveness of debt, the freeing of slaves. All of these are uh, interventions in the marketplace. (laughs) Um, And it seems that just as it is in human nature to try to look out for each other, it's also in human nature to convince people that greed and selfishness are good for everybody. This seems like an extreme cult-like idea that somehow, before we were born, got mainstreamed. And I'm thinking it more and more as I watch our news this week, Professor, and see all these people who are consuming a certain kind of media, and they are blaming the government for the toxic chemical disaster more than the the present government, more than they're blaming the business that paid the lobbyists to change the laws to let them save money and be less safe. Exactly. And I have to say the events of this week feel to us very poignant um, and, and sad, but also appropriate for our story because our story begins with the dangers of the railways. So some of the early government regulation in this country involved the railways, which were incredibly dangerous. Uh, One of my favorite facts in the book is this one. A boy born in the year 1899, 15 years later, when he was 15 years old in 1914, he would have been safer enlisting to fight in World War I than going to work on the railroads. Railroads were incredibly unsafe. And so regulations were put into place, particularly the development of workmen's compensation, to try to protect workers against death or injury in the workplace. And this is where we find the beginning of our story, the beginning of corporate pushback against government regulation and the attempt to blame big government for our problems um, when, in fact, the source of the problem was actually, quote, big business. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. I mean, you, you, you call it the high cost of the free market. There was a, a movement to mandate electronic braking systems. This train had a, a braking system that was described as Civil War era. It was all designed to prevent an accident like this. But as you know, protecting the lives of Americans might hurt profits a little bit. And so there was this strong push from the railroad industry and their lobbyists and the politicians they own. It, it seems like there just there aren't enough railway safety advocates pushing back against this. And that's why the legislation gets mowed down. Yeah. And I think this is part of the reason why we think our book is important and timely. So even though this is a long durée history, the book begins in the beginning of the 19th century, goes all the way to the present. And some readers might think, well, well why do I need to read 500 pages of history? But it's because <laughs> we're explaining how we got to this present situation. And it's a long history of how the business community built up this story, built a narrative through propaganda, which they promoted in popular culture, which they promoted in academic life, and which they promoted in politics to undermine public support for appropriate government interventions, involvement, regulation, whatever word you like, appropriate rules and regulations for how markets should safely and efficiently operate in our society. I think most people today, even even well-intentioned liberal folks, might not understand that 120 years ago, 110 years ago, 
our country was torn apart by massive debates about whether the government even had the right to ban child labor, whether the government had the right to try to protect factory workers. I mean, this is a time when we saw these a lot like now. How, how can they block union organizing? How can they get favorable coverage in the press? How can they rewrite textbooks? How can they reframe the entire debate? I mean, rural electrification seems like a natural now. We don't we aren't taught and it seems like that's a symptom of this control, that we aren't even taught about how fierce the struggles were for basic decency from child labor to a weekend 100 years ago. Exactly. And a big part of the work is of this book is to reclaim this story and to, to help people understand the real battles, the serious battles that took place. So rural electrification is a great uh, case in point. This is one of the chapters in our book. Um, many things we take for granted today, like the fact that virtually all Americans have electricity, were things that actually had to be fought for against business interests who tried to prevent it. So yes. rural electrification is a really important part of our story because part of this debate was about safety, workplace safety, preventing child labor, protecting workers and children from unsafe workplaces. But part of the story is about market failure itself. So part of the myth of the magic of the marketplace is that work is that markets work efficiently, markets deliver goods uh, at good prices, competition is good for the consumer, and it's all great. But in the early 1920s, there was a very significant market failure that was widely recognized. And it was Mm -hmm. the failure of the electricity industry to provide electricity to rural Americans. So the private sector had done a good job in electrifying big cities like New York, Chicago, St. Louis, but had in most cases, completely failed to provide electricity to rural customers. And so a number of reformers led by the progressive Republican, Gifford Pinchot, suggested the government needed to get involved in electricity markets to remedy this failure. The electricity industry, instead of trying to work with the government to say, oh, this is a good point, let's see what we can do, launched a massive propaganda campaign to attack Gifford Pinchot to try to undermine him personally, but also, and more important, to change the way Americans thought about capitalism and markets. And they did this in part through a campaign to rewrite American textbooks in economics and civics. They paid academics to produce new versions of textbooks that promoted the glories of the free market, of free enterprise capitalism, and argued against government involvement on the grounds of what I've said was the third part of the myth, that if you allow the government to become involved in these markets, it was a threat to American freedom. They spent millions of dollars on this campaign. It's been almost entirely forgotten. Um, In the 1930s, they were investigated. The Federal Trade Commission concluded this was the largest peacetime propaganda campaign in U.S. history. I mean, looking at the history, we're sort of raised with this understanding that the Great Depression hit. You know, we haven't had this level of income inequality, or perhaps I should say dramatically uneven income growth since the the Gilded Age, even the Great Depression. Once the Depression hit, it seems like, you know, we're taught, okay, we all agreed then this unfettered capitalism didn't work. The government has a role to play in protecting workers and protecting capitalism itself. But we're not really taught how ferocious the battle remained under FDR. I mean, bitter business leaders fought bitterly against any of the reforms in the New Deal that helped save our economy. Exactly. And so, again, in the book, we tell that story. So in the 1930s, 
and into the 1940s, many of the same business leaders who had been involved in some of these earlier fights become involved in a fight to prevent rural electrification under the New Deal, to prevent Social Security, to prevent a whole host of reforms that were put in place um, effectively to save capitalism from itself. Right. I mean, a lot of Americans have forgotten that in the 1930s, the American economy was in free fall and uh, big business was trying to persuade us to trust them to fix the problem. And that wasn't very credible, considering that they had created the problem in the first place. So throughout the 1930s into the 40s, even the 50s and 60s, big business effectively loses this argument. And the American people do support we reelect FDR four times, then we elect Truman. Uh, we elect Eisenhower, but Eisenhower supports Social Security and Medicare. Um, he he basically says out loud that the reforms of the New Deal are permanent. Many yep. U.S. historians thought the reforms of the New Deal were permanent, but the business community doesn't give up. They don't quit, and they continue this effort and they bring it into new realms. So in the book, we describe how academia, particularly at this point, universities, the NILA textbook campaign was mostly targeted at schools, to some extent, colleges and universities. But now they begin to try to develop academic credibility for these arguments by cultivating a cadre of intellectuals at a place that many people maybe won't be surprised to find out was the University of Chicago. What's a fun fact in this story is that these business executives actually went to Princeton first. Princeton said, no, thanks. Uh, We're not going to just hire people that businessmen handpick. But the University of Chicago said, yeah, we could do that. And so these businessmen work behind the scenes to bring to the United States two of the leaders of the Austrian School of Economics. They're considered Mm -hmm. the founders of modern neoliberalism, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich von Hayek. And they work behind the scenes and they pay for their salaries so that these men can be hired in the United States and use this to bolster the academic bona fides of these free market ideas. And this is why everyone knows Milton Friedman's name in the 21st century. Um, Exactly. So they fund something called the antitrust, uh, I'm sorry, the free market project. And one of the recipients of it is Milton Friedman who writes his best-selling work, Capitalism and Freedom, which really encapsulates that third piece of the myth. And another really important piece of the story is they fund a professor, George Stigler, uh, who wins the Nobel Prize, Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. And Stigler publishes an edited version of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Now, if you've ever read The Wealth of Nations, which most people haven't because it's a thousand pages, Adam Uh Smith actually has a very extensive discussion of the need for government regulation, particularly of banks. He has a discussion of the need to pay workers fair wages. And he even has a discussion in which he says when workers collaborate, it's generally fair because workers are disempowered. But when businesses collaborate, it's generally unfair because they have all the power. Stigler's version of Adam Smith expunges all of Uh. that. Amazing. There's there's also he calls for progressive taxation in the Wealth of Nations, 1776. The subjects of every state ought to contribute toward the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities. That is in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. All this heresy from their number one prophet. Exactly. So it has to be expunged. And and Stigler's version, then um, we couldn't find good data on exactly how many copies it sold, but we have reason to believe that it was widely used. It was designed to be used in schools and university courses. Um, and for many people, that would have been the version of Adam Smith that they encountered uh, at university. 
Now, obviously, you go deep into how the market fundamentalists engaged with academia to to push the glories of this mythical version of capitalism, but they also went for Hollywood and the mass media. I must confess, Professor, I was surprised you had an entire chapter about Little House on the Prairie. Could you, I know you must get asked about this at every media appearance for the book, but why does Little House on the Prairie figure so prominently into this history? Well, what we show in the book is that the propaganda campaign really worked on multiple levels, of which three were most important. One was the influencing of academia, another was the influencing of politics, and a third was the influencing of popular culture. And so in the book, we show how the propagandists used radio, television, film, and also children's books. Here we draw on the work of Caroline Fraser and Christine Woodson, who I want to acknowledge, um, and their work on the history of the Little House on the Prairie series. And this is, frankly, a heartbreaking story, because like millions of American girls, I grew up reading those stories, which were marketed as the true life stories of Laura Ingalls Wilder, a young girl growing up on the American frontier. But it turns out they weren't true stories. Laura Ingalls Wilder made rough notes about incidents in her life, but they were turned into stories by her daughter, the libertarian Mm -hmm. writer Rose Wilder Lane, who was a friend of Herbert Hoover and a correspondent of J. Howard Pugh, the president of Sun Oil Corporation, a very important captain of industry in America. Rose crafted these stories into libertarian parables, um, and they were false on a number of levels. They weren't the true stories. They were post hoc reconstructions. They told the story of the family's success through hard work and individual determination. But in fact, the family was actually not successful. Their life story was really a story of repeated failures. And the third way it was false was that it completely effaced the role of the government. Um, But of course, without the Homestead Act and without the role of the federal government removing indigenous peoples, there's no way those white settlers could have even been there in the first place. I have so many questions about this book, and it's such a joy to talk with you because I've really been enjoying it. But before I know our time grows short, I I have to ask, do you think that the current Republican Party's hard right turn has alienated some business leaders from the party? I'm looking at what Ron DeSantis has been doing with Disney. And before that, Donald Trump going after businesses he didn't like and using the government to harass uh, Amazon. Uh, Does it seem like there could be a tipping point? I think the Republican Party, the extreme right wing, has painted itself into a corner because, of course, what we've seen is that many businesses are responsive to the desires and needs of their um, customers and even their workers. And it's good business to be responsive to the needs of your consumer. It's good business to take good care of your workers and not allow them to be killed in the workplace or injured or, or otherwise alienated. And so we have seen some corporations, including Lee, I mean, it's a measure of the weird place we're in today that Disney is now being presented as a woke corporation. If you know anything about the history of Walt Disney, (laughs) his extreme racism, his extreme anti-Semitism, it's kind of ironic, but in a way sort of delicious. But it shows that the extreme right wing has really painted itself into a corner because they've taken such extreme positions that now they're actually fighting with the very businesses that not very long ago would have been their natural allies. And so I think we can hope that some of these contradictions, some of the hypocrisies, some of the untruths are starting to be exposed. And we hope that our book will help foster that conversation. 
That book is, once again, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market by Naomi Oreskes with Eric Conway. It is such a great pleasure having you here, Professor. I'd love to have you back and go even deeper on the book. Thank you so much for writing this. You have made it all make sense, and it's a great book to give us a gift to anyone who cares about, well, how America got that way. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Sirius XM Progress. I really want to talk about Scott Adams and Dilbert because uh, Dilbert is in none of your newspapers anymore. But let's get back to the phones. People have been waiting on hold for a very long time, starting with Mary in Manhattan. I'm so sorry, Mary, that our connection didn't work before. Hello. Hi, John. Thank you for taking my call. I want to follow up and ask you a question about the conversation that you had earlier when you opened the show about Fox Please. News. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, as you already described, took the stand under oath and admitted under oath that Fox intentionally lied. So my question is twofold. First, why is the White House Correspondents Association, which Fox is a member of, why are they silent when Fox has violated all their bylaws by Rupert Murdoch's admission under oath? And my second question is, Fox is also a publicly traded company. Where is the SEC? When will they finally be held accountable that they can't be on the air anymore until they apologize and spend as much time telling their audience the truth as they spend telling lies. Those are my questions. Oh, Thank you. Oh, well, I mean, listen, you're asking the right clown about that because the answer to your first question lies with our first guest. It's all about capitalism. And Fox News makes a lot of money for a lot of people. And that's why they've been able to get away with this kind of malfeasance for more than half of my lifetime. I think that's quite simply it. And, you know, they will get away with it for as long as they can get away with it until some regulatory body, until some adult in the room shows up and smacks them down. And we could be at that tipping point right now. I mean, Murdoch admitted Trump's election lies were bullshit. That's his word. But he stood by while his on-camera anchors just lied and spread so many lies to the audience. And they did it because when they told the truth on election night, their ratings tumbled for days after. So they followed Donald Trump's lies. It was not in the public interest. It was not factual. It was not news. But it made them money. It got their ratings back up. That's why they did it. And now we find out today that Dominion has evidence that Murdoch gave Jared Kushner advanced copies of Biden's ads before they were made public. That's helping a campaign. And it was an undeclared donation to a campaign. So, I mean, there's so much illegal here that if they can't, if they, I think this is going to be a struggle. This case is going to decide if media can just lie and get away with it if they're powerful enough. We're witnessing it. I don't know how it's going to play out. What do you think, I agree with every word you said. I And I'd also like to know your thoughts, and perhaps I'm mistaken, but can't the White House Communications Association kick their correspondence out of their organization? They can, but you know what that's going to lead to? That's going to lead to Fox playing victims, saying they're being censored, uh, you know, and fundraising off of it and making money off of it. And uh, and it would come around and attack uh, the, the White House Correspondents Association. It would come around and attack the White House press office. It would make it seem like this organization was being punished because they serve conservatives. You know exactly how they propagandize this. Well, you're right. Thank you, John. Yeah. 
Thank you, Mary. What a pleasure. And uh, stay safe out there. I know the snow is falling now. 866-997-4748. Let me go to our good friend, Mitch in Kent State. Hi, Mitch. Thanks for your patience on hold. Hey, John. Thanks for picking me up. Appreciate it. First of all, I wanted to say uh, thanks again for the uh, interview with George Harris and Rabbi Shankar. I know it's it's just a it's a keeper for sure. I mean, oh, thank you. Uh, your eloquence and your you know the way you just so soft touch. So just a nice soft touch. It wasn't uh, you know no bragging. I, like I was that. not eloquent in that, Mitch. I love you, but I was not eloquent. That was the worst interview I've ever oh. given to anyone. I had I was very new at the game. I had only it was my first TV job. I was yeah. supposed to fly to London to do a special with McCartney, and they they called me and said you've got to delay a day and do George Harrison and Ravi Shankar in New York, and I yeah. was making inappropriate jokes, and I was nervous, and I couldn't concentrate. I was a, a, a wreck, and I, I just have come to believe over the years that George enjoyed how raw and unpolished I was, and the fact that I wanted to talk about God and death and, and meditation, and that's why he, he stayed for so long. But thank you. Yeah. But well, I, I appreciate your kindness, but I was it's, it's a terrible interview, and that's probably why George hung out so long. Uh, John, you're you're being so, uh, I, you know, I just humble. I uh, because oh, I'm awesome at being humble. My humility skills are off the fucking charts, bro. I'm so humble. I, no, I slay at humility. But what's supposed to be originally what like thirty minutes or something like that? And just a short uh, uh, interview, right? I mean, but uh, it went on for how long? He came in with Ravi Shankar and Ravi's wife, and and they were just going to hang out for you know a few minutes, and we were going to get a sound bite. They were promoting this album that George produced and, and right. plays guitar on called Chance of... I mean, people might not remember this, but in the mid-90s, chanting kind of almost became big again because they put out this album by the Benedictine monks of Santo Domingo de Silos called mm-hmm. Chant, and it was just Benedictine monks doing chants, and it sold like a gazillion copies. So George put out this album with Robbie of classic, traditional Indian Vedic chants. Uh, George does some vocals on it and, you know, plays guitar, but it's it's not pop music at all. And right, right. I, I don't think they had a lot of places where they could come and talk about this, talk about Indian music and spiritual music. But um, VH1 let the kid do it. And uh, they came by and he stayed for four hours. And um, I have so many stories from it. And one of these days, the family will allow us to finally release all of it as a as a as a video because uh, there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been seen on TV. Yeah, yeah, I, I do have that CD, the, the Chance CD. But uh, yeah, just uh, I mean, just thank you and thank you again. I always appreciate it. Oh, uh, John, okay. also uh, happy birthday to Pearl, uh, released this day in 1971, uh, three months after she died. Uh, yeah, Pearl. what a, what a story! Janis Joplin dies, and then they released her greatest album after that and like it it stayed at number one for nine weeks mm. i mean can you imagine can you imagine this is 1971 I, can you imagine any album being i mean adele beyonce any album being number one for nine weeks just right, amazing right but uh yeah uh i never i worked at a store when that album came out and of course i would go and put it on the stereo there in our in our uh with sold stereos and stuff and played that thing just oh just from, from beginning to end just uh, brought tears to your eyes because uh, you knew what happened and, and to you know and to uh, relive her uh, between you and her in the studio there just uh, just like one on one and just uh, just a beautiful album I agree that um, box that three disc box that they put out of Janis Joplin a couple of years ago is, is also splendid the one from the yeah. 90s just great John, uh, uh, on this uh, cartoon strip, you know, I think, you know, remember a song called Short People by Randy Newman? Of course, yeah. 
Uh, well, I think he was kind of thinking he would go the Randy Newman route, but but Randy he does. Of course, his songs are all tongue in cheek. Everyone knows that. Uh, you know, when I, I never forget when that song first came out. Short people, you know, they thought, well, what a what a racist. What you know, they thought that for sure Randy was, uh, you know, gone the wrong way. And you know, what the where is this about? coming from? Why 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 is this on your mind tonight, Mitch? Well, I, I just trying to equalize, the, or just trying to compare the two, I guess. I, I know, like I said, when Short People came out, you know, everybody thought Randy was a racist. But, of course, it was Randy was putting the spotlight on, on the racist, okay? Right. He always had that knack for putting the, putting the light on people who, who were doing wrong. And, and, and a funny. And <laughs> I don't a, think, a, by the way, I don't think Randy does that song live anymore. I don't think he does it in his shows. <laughs> yeah, I think he's retired that one a while back. Yeah, when I was, but, a, uh, you know, I thought it was you know, very mean when I was a kid. I always thought it was a mean song, but right. But we know where he's coming from, just like his uh, his album, good old voice. You know, his songs from the south, and mm. uh, you know, we we understand that uh, what the point he was trying to make. But I think anyway, you know, this guy was trying to try to make the same point, but I don't think it it, it just just didn't come out right. It just didn't fell flat in his face, and uh, shame on him. Uh, you know, I just uh, you know, now he's trying to explain his way out of it. It's just uh, you know, it, it, I think it's getting worse the more he tries to exp- you know tries to uh, yeah. do an explanation. So I agree. Uh, I, yeah, I you know it just uh, I know you know free press and you know and you know, all that and, you know well you know Doonesbury again we go with Doonesbury but Doonesbury you know. Uh, you know, he's uh, you know he's well established. He knows uh, you know he, he knows how to make a point. With well, him. hang on. Also, also, Doonesbury's funny. Okay, right. yeah. <laughs> Doonesbury is funny. Right, Mitch. Right. There, I, I can show you Hiroshima footage that is funnier than Dilbert. Do you understand? I can show yeah. you nine eleven footage. I can show you botched surgeries that are funnier than Dilbert, yeah. and and that's yeah. fine. There's lots of comics out there that aren't funny. There's lots right. of comics out there that are kind of right wing. There's lots of comics right. out there that kids shouldn't be reading. And Dilbert was just mediocre enough to slug along all these years. But I think this guy Scott Adams really revealed um, his true nature on social media over the years. And I want to talk about this with Rhonda in a few minutes because uh, I tussled with him in the past on social media. Um, I was. Was not surprised at all by what he did. The only thing that surprised me was that he actually finally said the most racist things out loud. And I was a little bit surprised that all the newspapers dropped Dilbert right away. I just yeah. I, I I have my my expectations of the corporate media have become so low and I see so much lying and so much bigotry that gets waved away gently that I, I just didn't see it happening. But wow, they have yeah. all dumped him. Yeah, credit to the, play, to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, one of the first ones to dump them. And uh, but you, John, you always mentioned in the past about Fox comedians, or remember when Fox tries to be funny, or they had yes. that uh, you know that Friday night show. It just doesn't work. Yeah. It just does not work. Like, no. like you said, it's punching down, and uh, it, yeah. it just doesn't work. And uh, you nailed it. So yeah, for sure. And then uh, one more thing, John, on the on the uh, Fox uh, revelation here, do you see uh, because of their incompetence? Uh, leading to January sixth, because in part because of their, uh, uh, you know, because of uh, their false uh, uh, reporting. What are you saying, Mitch? I'm so sorry. I don't understand the well, question. With, with, Fox, with Fox, you know, denying or, or behind the curtain, you know, to giving, uh, you know, the Trump thing as far as his, as far as the election, and then right. having the audience build 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 their audience into a fever pitch, which were which led to January sixth. In, in part because of Fox's uh, incompetence. 
Yes. Well, I mean, I don't. Well, I don't know if it's incompetence. I think Fox, like the rest of the Republican establishment, because that's what Fox News is, the Republican establishment. They are not conservative. They are pro Republican Party. And they've wanted to cut Donald Trump loose for a long time. Murdoch knows he's an imbecile. Hannity knows he's an imbecile. Tucker, all of these unmanly, godless toadies that have just been there sniffing the man's taint for six years. They all know what a corrosively evil and stupid racist fool he is. But their job is to make money. Their job is not to report. Their job is not to tell people the truth. Their job is to keep your uncle racist and aunt dead inside watching. And that's it. And so when they came out on election night and said they, they, Fox called the election for Biden before CNN or MSNBC did, and their ratings took a hit for days. And that's why it may have been Fox's incompetence. They were so eager to get rid of Trump because, again, the week Barack Obama was elected, both Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly got new four year deals. Fox does better as a business model when there's a Democrat in the White House and they can hate on him, as opposed to defending Bush for eight years or defending Trump for four years. Fox wanted him gone, but they need the ratings. And when they saw that people turned off Fox in disgust, the right wing people, they had to go back. And we now see the text. All the anchors knew it was false. And they all pushed it anyway. And they tried to equivocate. You can see Tucker trying to, like, leave open a scintilla of plausible deniability in his reads. We'll see if they get away with it. One final thing, John. You know, there was a movie, remember the movie Network. Well, Fox's version would be called Net Worth. So. Yeah. <laughs> what their oh, net see. worth was, it was what their concern was, you know. Their, Amen, uh, Mitch. Their final, their, the final dollar. Thank you, John. Yeah. Thank you, Mitch. You're a gentleman. I have no idea why you listen to our show. Quick break. When we come back, we're joined by comedian Rhonda Handsome and more of your calls at 866-997-4748. Let's go a little bit deeper on the end of Dilbert. 866-997-GRIT. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm about to welcome the queen of jazz, the Nina Simone of comedy, a woman who is just way too cool to talk to me, but yet she does because she's that generous. Rhonda Handsome's a great stand-up and a writer and a director. She's open for Anita Baker and open for Diana Ross and open for Aretha. She does great solo shows. You can catch her on Politipod, available on SoundCloud. It's Tall, Dark, and Handsome Monday with Miss Rhonda Handsome. I'm black, y'all. (laughs) <laughs> and thank god for that it was good to have a delayed catchphrase hi Rhonda. hi there uh well we're wrapping up uh, black history month with a bang <laughs> yes we're wrapping up black history month by wrapping up dilbert and uh delivering him to the fishes uh yeah well yeah you know it's funny i i was surprised how quickly they um you know kicked him out the door but uh, I feel like he was talking uh, for a lot of people, John. I think he was, but I, I, I with, I'm with you. I was surprised uh, that, well, that the market responded as it did. For those who don't know what we're talking about, last week, and he has a YouTube show, Scott Adams, who does Dilbert, which is that unfunny comic about office life that you probably were given a calendar of at some point in the 90s. Um, he described people who are black as members of a hate group and said white people should get away from them. Uh, Rhonda, for about 10 seconds, I considered in a debate with myself airing the clip tonight to let people have some some reference for what this man said. And I realized, you know what? No, we don't need to hear it. Um, But this is, you know... (sighs) 
The part that really got to me was when he kept saying he doesn't want to help black people anymore. He's tired of helping black people. And I'm like, what has he done? Has he been fighting for reparations for for the uh, descendants of of, uh, American chattel slavery? You know, has he been uh, asking for historical uh, um, statues that uh, commemorate our enslavement to, uh, to be taken down. I mean, what has he been doing? He's called know, for to- uh, a, he's, he's called for, you know, uh, uh, advanced uh, voting rights, civil uh, uh, voting rights legislation. He's called for prison reform. Uh, he's called for changing sentencing guidelines. No, he's done. I'm lying. He's done none of this. No, he doesn't care. He's always been a smug bastard. And there was this in 2017, the Anti-Defamation League says this phrase, it's OK to be white began on 4chan and white supremacists began using it all over the place. And so there was this poll, this Rasmussen conservative survey that asked if people agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. And so Scott Adams, because right wing men who are the majority have to be always stressing their victimhood to us. He noted that 26% of black respondents disagreed with that statement, it's okay to be white. So he turned this into saying there's 20 million black people who want to kill us out there. And what's been amazing is it took a couple of days. The Washington Post said they would no longer publish his strip because of his statements promoting segregation. He said white people get away. The LA Times discontinued Dilbert. San Antonio Express News got rid of it because of hateful and discriminatory public comments. USA Today Network uh, stopped publishing Dilbert. Plains Dealer in Cleveland And he's now playing victim like he does and saying that um, social media has uh, they hate me and they're canceling me. This is not cancel culture. This is consequence culture. He said what he wanted to say. And capitalism said back, you know what? That's not good for business. John, he kept saying that uh, he wanted to get away from black people. Does he live in Compton? I mean, essentially. because America is a very segregated country and most people live around their own people. And uh, where where is he going to to be in a place that has more white people where, uh, you know, he's not going to be subject to uh, toxic chemical spills and and poison <laughs> environments? I'll tell you where he's going to be. He's going to be in more and more Republican gatherings because the the right wing is rallying around this guy. I'm waiting for all the racists to have their dark Dilbert cartoons and memes coming up. But you know who defended him? Noted anti-racist and human rights hero Elon Musk. Elon, you ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. Um, Elon said a- after all these news media removed the Dilbert cartoons and said they're not going to carry them anymore because their paper doesn't want to help promote this guy after all of his racism. Elon called the media racist for getting rid of his cartoons, which I think means Elon understands racism as bad as well as he understands free speech, Rhonda. Well, uh, isn't he... um agreeing that white people are are really being are, are, are the ones who are being prejudiced against white he people to be persecuted because he, 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 he deleted the tweet and then instead he went off on how the media is racist against white people folks calling out racism if that makes you feel uncomfortable it's not because you're white it's because you're racist and, you know, John, I really feel like I'm ready for Black History Month to be just like Black 
history hour. I, I really have had had enough of it, it seems like the craziest things go on during this time. We, I, I don't know if you saw where some toddlers uh, at a daycare center had blackface on and and then the college students, I mean, at each uh, uh, college or high school students uh, at a Catholic, I think it was a Catholic school. Yes. Uh, sprayed, um, you know, blackface on on their faces and and That's we're right. doing racial slurs um it really is getting to be hard on me to celebrate uh black history month because it feels like we 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 become targets during that time rather than celebrating the inventions the pat the the patents the uh which by the way most of the time people had us to give over to to whites to, to, because they they couldn't right. have their 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 creativity uh monetized it, it, it's very challenging john i now, want a black history hour minute and, and that'll be enough for me. well hang on a second let me tug on your coat about that because i, I want to ask you seriously like what what would that look like in terms of the popular culture i mean i i sent a child to public school just south of harlem and i know how good that school is at teaching black history every day and making sure the kids get a very very broad idea my kid goes to a minority white public school in new york but what would it look like to you if this culture took black history month seriously well, it would mean that we were talking about our history actually every day, talking about the good and the bad every day, uh, giving us a chance to be uh, objective uh, about us so that we don't keep repeating uh, you know, the most horrible things that we've done. And maybe that we could start repeating some of the better, some of, uh, some of our better spirit. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, I know why, but but having it separate really makes it a, a point of, of uh, targeting and also manipulation. I mean, half half of the the people who are talking about Black History Month, they don't even have. Uh, they have more about Africa. They have more about Jamaica or or uh, the you know the Caribbean and. Uh, South American countries sometimes than they do about the people who are here, that that this this holiday was made to enlighten people about those who are native black native to America. I agree completely. We're talking about African-Americans, <laughs> not not being a catch all term for everyone whose uh, ancestry. I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Like Black History Month is really about African-American History Month. And, and yes, that's the culture yes. that we have to celebrate and understand and try to teach our cousins and uncles and aunts to not be so afraid of all the time. Well, I, I really I really don't know what what they're afraid of, John, because, you know, as, as I said before, America is segregated and you know you we can't get away from how we were founded i you know i say almost every week we black people built the the enslaved built this country we were this country's currency john i don't know how how more integral you can get than being the the you know the know. the actual legal tender uh, of you. this country Exactly. But in but you still I mean, we're still facing the denial of the existence of racism. And I want to just give this little little uh, uh, insight here. Um, a couple of years ago, this happened, I think two years ago, three years ago, someone yelled at me. Um, 
on Twitter, Trump did not call the Charlottesville white supremacists very fine people. This is the talking point, right? I'm like, no, he called the people marching in Charlottesville to honor statues of white supremacists very fine people, because that's what Trump did. Even if you weren't in the Klan, even if you weren't a white supremacist, if you were in Charlottesville for Unite the Right, you were marching to keep up monuments honoring white supremacy enslaving traitors. And Scott Adams, Dilbert himself, went after me on Twitter and he said to me, nope, I interviewed attendees who were not with the marchers, disavowed the racists, but wanted statues to remain for historical purposes, as do many black citizens, by the way. So (laughs) that's when I learned that Scott Adams was racist, Rhonda. Uh, He tried to convince me that people marching in Charlottesville to preserve statues of white supremacists for historical purposes were in no way racist. It's just for the history we should keep honoring these enslavers. Oh, and many unnamed black citizens want the statues to be there as well. Well, you're right. He speaks for millions. He speaks for millions who want to deny the reality of racism and the history of owning people in this country. In his recent tirades, <laughs> he, he named somebody. I think it was Don Lemon. I'm not sure if he he used uh, something that Don Lemon has said in his rant to uh, to bolster his uh, his his racism. Uh, and and yeah. that's you know yeah. that's something you know that you know people like to use statistics. They like to 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 just spew they they like to spew their venom and you know the the thing is a lot of white people act like their privilege which comes from not having to suffer the slings and arrows of being readily identifiable as the black color does. Uh, you know, I'm not saying there aren't, you know, they're, they're not suffering poverty. In fact, they, of um, most of the people on welfare are, are white. Yes. I'm not saying they don't have issues with drug addiction. But uh, when a lot Correct. of them come to court, they're given rehabilitation and not criminalized. I mean, Correct. I know there, there are difficulties for them, but you they have a lot of white people have no idea how it is that it's almost 24 7 that you are recognized and stigmatized because of the color of of your skin exactly when we talk about white privilege we're not saying that every white person has it easy there's tons of caucasians who struggle my god I, I could tell you most of my family, I come from poor people and there's lots of hardworking white people. And when we say white privilege, we're not talking about the fact that they have it easy. We're talking about the fact that they have an easier time hailing a cab than black people. We're talking about the fact that as hard as their lives are, they are lucky that they are white while they're going through this poverty in this particular country. And and also, you know, a lot of programs, I mean, uh, even with homesteading, I mean, black people were kept from being part of that. And I think, uh, you know, something that Whoopi Goldberg got, you know, all tangled up in was that she was one of very few people who got uh, in an opportunity around homesteading. It was not reparations, but, you know, they, the land that was granted to people, to white people, was the basis for generational wealth for, generational for, wealth for so it. many. 
And exactly. I mean, you know, even, even things like the GI Bill that, you know, uh, blacks were discriminated against. I'm not even going to get into those who were actually harassed and murdered while in uniform after serving, uh, you know, the country. Well, listen, we have so many of our evil army of the night that wants to weigh in on this and other matters. And I want to talk Free to you about AI. Army. OK, OK. I want to talk about AI chatbot with you as well. But let, some folks have been on hold for a very long time. Let's get to the phones. Guys, thank you so much for your patience on hold. Uh, let me go to. Hey, well, it's our good friend Bill in Pennsylvania. Bill, welcome. Good to have you. You're on with Rhonda. Hello, Rhonda. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you, Bill. How are you? Yeah. I'm doing well there. Uh, unfortunately, there, I just wanted to comment on John's guest there, prior guest there, Please. regarding uh, Professor Naomi there. Please. Uh, that was truly enlightening there. And uh, I, uh, she spoke about uh, electrifying the rural areas there. Yes. And my grandfather told me all about that, how... Uh, he started selling water pumps to farmers there because once he realized there that uh, they, they, the area would be electrified there, and a lot mm. of people, a lot of people benefited from that. It That's right. Moved our country, really moved our country ahead there. But big so, business uh, fought against business fought against it because how do we make money off of bringing electricity to rural Americans? And it, you right, see the same thing happening right. right now with this administration and the previous Democratic administration trying to bring Wi-Fi to rural America. Right, right. Uh, so uh, I, I found that enlightening. I'm going to have to read her book there. I definitely uh, yes, appreciate that. And as far as... Uh, Gilbert goes. I I used to I I'd read him. He's still in the paper I got today. There, he's yeah. still in the paper there. But uh, oh, I find I find I I didn't find him that funny, really. To be honest, <laughs> with you that means that, that's that's fine. I I've never found. I mean, Dilbert. You know, I've I've been to pet funerals that were funnier than Dilbert. I got to tell you. <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, there uh, he, he's all way off track there, as far as I'm concerned. There, but yes, uh, sir, he is. But uh, he doesn't really. It's easy to walk a mile in my shoes. That's what I say. There, Amen. Know, something he. But yeah, that's a good point. There, that's it. But that's a good point, Bill. I mean, yeah. we've all known white people just like Scott Adams who just don't care. They hear talk about racism and discrimination and bigotry they hear they hear people trying to explain what what it is to have systemic they don't want to hear it i grew up around caucasians like this they're bored of it right. they don't want to hear your whining my life's hard too so why should i care about someone less fortunate than me and then they usually go off to brag about how christian they are you know what we're talking about oh uh, definitely there are brothers they're uh, yeah. humanity and they are that's what that's what we need to always keep in mind there and and uh, work for the advancement of humanity. There, That's right. Know? Well, you know what? I always say I love all humanity. I just can't stand fucking people. Bill, thank you so much for, <laughs> well, for thank, calling us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Teresa in Washington State. Teresa, hi. You're on with the great Rhonda Handsome. Good evening. Uh, hi, Rhonda. Um, you hi, know, in Teresa. the 1970s, in the 1970s, I thought I was pretty progressive to know a lot of black people. And I had a black boyfriend, 
And my black girlfriends hated it because I was stealing their man. But anyway, <laughs> out here in, in, in Washington, we have a city called Centralia, and it was founded in 1875 by an interracial couple, a black man and a white woman. And wow. I'm like, Jesus, can you imagine the a-holes they had to deal with? In 1875? I'm terrified to imagine that. But, you know, I Teresa... Know. It's very you know interesting what you say. Somebody like uh, Scott is really the divisive person because it keeps uh, the white people who are uh, you know unfortunate enough to be uh, lower income, lower educated, and to not have uh, a lot of resources. It keeps them from joining with uh, black people to right. to actually end the oppression against all of us. I mean, you know, Teresa, right. my, my heart really you know goes out to to people who uh, who like lose their uh, their entire fortunes with with this like this toxic. Bill. But the thing is, the racism keeps us from working all together. And uh, and he has been so divisive with this statement to to rally people. He's going to end up being a, a shooting star, as you say, in the in the Republican Party, uh, like uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. No pun intended. But it's true. But. but that's how they that's how they broke up unions, Rhonda. I mean, Heather McGee talks about this beautifully in The Sum of Us, that they used racism to actually break up organized labor by saying, you want those black workers to be paid the same as you? And it, it, that's how it's done. It's divide and conquer. When poor yeah. white people realize they have more in common with poor black people than they do with rich white people, then and only then will you see some change in the society. Well, it's, it's, I think racism comes from, um, the word race is a competitive, as a competition and a group of people are very competitive, and that's why birds of a feather flock together for protection and power. And uh, yeah, are- tribalism. Tribalism is stronger than morality. That's true. Yeah, so that's why the words race and race are like you know the same word for for different things. What do you call that? A simile or something? Um, I the same word but mean different things. I'm not sure. A homonym. I'm not sure, but I know what you're trying to say, and I appreciate it, Teresa. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, let me go, if I can, to uh, Mike in Michigan. Mike, you've been on hold forever, and I thank you for your patience. You're on with Rhonda. I'm white, y'all. Sorry about that, Rhonda. Help you, Rhonda. You got it. You got it. Anytime. Hey, I've been, I've been listening to James Baldwin and, uh, and some old stuff, and uh, I'm just uh, amazed with him. Yeah. And what... The stuff he said, I mean, uh, 50 years ago, it's still uh, apropos today. Uh, have you have you watched have uh, you watched the documentary? Um, I am not your Negro. I not sure. Oh, sure, well, maybe. you'll want to you'll you want to watch the it, it came out about five years ago. And uh, it's I one of the best documentaries it. of the 21st century. Absolutely oh. true. And what you're saying uh, is that we are still fighting the same fight that James Baldwin was championing in his time. And it's a sad commentary. You, you know, uh, you know, pe- 
people keep talking about how far we've come, but I, I really do feel like the representation that we have, a lot of it is very superficial and cosmetic. And, and the, the arguments that James Baldwin was bringing up of, about the systemic racism here are evergreen and still applicable. Yes. And, and also just going beyond race. I mean, how Baldwin talked about not just race and class, but also about, you know, being a man and all of the unspoken sexuality issues that he managed to talk about rather artfully without spelling it out too explicitly. I mean, just, uh, yeah. There's a, on the, there's a quote. On the, oh, hang on. Hang on. Chris is weighing in. Hi, Chris. Oh, Chris. Hi, Chris. The high mic. Uh, there's a on the Criterion channel this month. They've been showcasing a lot of James Baldwin documentaries and archival footage. And there is this archival kind of like speech, like a panel he did in London and um, addressing the kind of the like uh, black people in the UK who have, have a Caribbean descent mm-hmm. and the influx of immigration and how the differences and comparisons and similarities between their experience and his experience as an American and his co-host and partner in the whole thing, of course, is Dick Gregory. Oh, wow. Sitting right there at his side. And the two of them Ah. is having this conversation and it's, it's almost spooky how, Wait a minute. What did you just say, Chris? Oh, okay. oh right. we got it. Oh, we got it on tape. Oh, my God. Oh, ruined. oh Dilbert party of two. People. You're going to Dilbert Island now, cancel boy. But but it, to how applicable everything they're saying is today. And it just, you know, yes. times like that where you're like, oh, well, you know, things haven't really changed. And that's not that's not that's not does it inspire hope in me. Well, but that's what our whole that's that's what, you know, I mean, Professor Naomi was talking all about. It is the same stuff. But the corporations, the business interests, the people who own our society keep finding new ways to colonize the minds of people. And we grow up knowing more commercial jingles than we know the names of our own representatives. And that's by design. We are raised to be corporate, not civic. We are raised to take for granted the fact that capitalism, as we define it, can buy media, buy politicians, and buy the way we think. A quote by Baldwin, you know, I I can't believe what you say because I I see what you do. Right on. And he was on the Dick Cavett show on that one, but, you know, I think that was a classic, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a new term for racism now. You can call somebody a Dilbert. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I <laughs> like it. Thank you, Mike. Good to hear from you, sir. Thank you. Let me go to Bill in New Jersey. Bill, hello. You're on with Miss Rhonda Handsome. Good evening. Good evening. Did you ever see that sappy movie, but well done, uh, Leatherheads? Leatherheads? Yeah, yeah, I did. They clearly directed it, right? I, I, I have not had the pleasure. Oh, it's a great movie. I mean, it's kind of soppy and everything, but it's so realistic for that time period. Anyway, it's about professional football before there were any rules. Right. And all the crazy stuff they did, they had a pig and a poke, and they had a crusty bob, and they had all these plays. One of them was where they would sew half of a football to the guy's uh, jersey. He'd put his arm under it like he's carrying it, and he'd be the uh, decoy while the other guy ran with the ball. But what it demonstrated was, and people were being killed on the field and everything, is how right. important regulations are. Ask Thank a, you. Ask a right-wing person uh, how football would work without rules, what would happen on the field. And that's a game with a lot of rules. 
That's um, true. That's a good point. So, so why would you get rid of regulations, especially arbitrarily, like Trump said? Well, you know, it's like hostages. Well, for every uh, thing we we have to spend money on, we're going to have to get rid of some, uh, uh, you know, some rules here. Uh, and it doesn't matter which ones they are, whether they'll kill this person or that person or whatever. But Bill, 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 if, well, if, but Bill, if billionaires could make more money, don't you think they would outlaw referees in sporting events? If they could make, oh, if yeah. they could find a way that banning referees well, helped them make another couple of nickels a month, wouldn't the CEOs well, who own our country ban even literal refs in sporting events? I mean, that's it. It's all about how they can own everything and right. own the way we view the world. Uh-huh. And that's why we have a world where we think having billionaires and poverty uh-huh. at the same time is right. somehow a good idea. Right. But one, one other thing, when I was a kid in the 60s, in class, we learned about the Soviet Union, and we learned about de-Stalinization, where they made pieces of history disappear. Like, when Stalin fell out of favor, when Khrushchev right. came in, they erased all the history books of anything bad about him or anything that happened. And we couldn't believe it. And I was discussing with my parents, and they said, yeah, that's what they do over there. They, they censor stuff, and they're... This, you know, this crazy guy, McCarthy, you know, they they said he went nuts and uh, it was just hard to believe. And they had these things that were called the um, trust and I trust laws, which Reagan stopped enforcing in the 80s. And if we didn't have so many uh, monopolies these days. We, we wouldn't have such a problem with Citizens United. There was more competition. Yeah, that's you know, a great point. Under Carter, he, he broke up uh, AT&T into all these baby bells, and the sum total of the baby bells made more money than the singularity, you know, the, the whole thing yeah. together. If you have more competition, it's much, much better. Prices I completely better. agree, and more competition is good for business, just like racism is bad for business. we got to go, Bill, but I thank you for the call. Rhonda, how do our listeners follow you? Oh, follow me on Facebook at Rhonda Handsome Comedy, Instagram, Rhonda Full with two L's, and Twitter at Rhonda Handsome, like a handsome man without the D. You don't need the D, baby. You don't need it. Thank you so much, Miss Handsome, for classing up our show. This is Sirius XM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. Peace.